If you don't already have your Bible open to Matthew 1, I'm going to encourage you to do that. And I'm going to encourage you to actually open a physical Bible. You're at home today. Hopefully you have one. Uh, so there's no excuse of, hey, I forgot my Bible. You're on the hook today. So I'm going to encourage you, get up, go to your bookcase, your bedroom, wherever you keep your Bible, grab it, and physically open with me to Matthew chapter 1. As I already mentioned, we are kicking off uh, new through 30 today, our 30-day reading plan through the New Testament. In conjunction with that, we're doing a series called New Through 30. Uh, So we are going to take the next few Sundays, the rest of the month of January, and seek God uh, in his word in the New Testament in conjunction with the things we're going to be reading. So this week, you're going to read all of the book of Matthew, all of the book of Mark, and part of the book of Luke. Uh, so that's where we are headed this week in New Through 30. I, I mentioned this before, but I want to reiterate it. Uh, you don't have to read all of this in one sitting each day, like Matthew, we're reading chapter 1 through 8. If you want to do a few chapters in the morning, a couple at lunch, and a few more in the evening, you can do that. If you want to do it all in one chunk, you're welcome to do that. We're leaving that up to you. We don't want to be legalistic about the timing of it. But we're challenging you, each of these chapters today. So what I want to do today is is we're going to talk about beginnings. We are beginning a new year. We are beginning our journey through the New Testament. We're beginning a lot of things. And so we're going to start at the very beginning of Matthew. Uh, And we're going to talk today about the power of beginnings. That's the title of today's message as we begin our New Through 30 series. The power of beginnings. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the three Gospels we're going to be reading in this week, are collectively known as the Synoptic Gospels. They collectively tell very similar stories and give a very similar account of Jesus. But while there are a lot of similarities in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they each have different purposes. They each have a different approach. And so today we're going to preach from Matthew. We're going to start reading in Matthew. So I want to talk to you for just a minute about Matthew's purpose. Uh, Matthew had really two joint purposes. Uh, The first was to show Jesus, or excuse me, to show Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. Matthew, if you're familiar, was a tax collector. He was a Jew who worked for the Romans, and then Jesus called him as one of his disciples. He repented. He turned away from his wicked ways as a tax collector, Uh, and God actually called him to the Jewish people. Of, Of all of his disciples, Matthew was called to the Jews, which is interesting because, of course, all 12 of the disciples were Jews, but Matthew was probably the most unlikely. Matthew was the one who was most hated by the Jews because he worked for the Roman Empire. And yet that was the one that God said, I'm sending you to my people, to the Jewish people. So Matthew's purpose in writing was to specifically write to the Jews and to show them, to demonstrate for them that Jesus is the Messiah. We see this fleshed out in a number of ways in Matthew's gospel. Uh, one is that Matthew doesn't explain a lot of Jewish customs. Luke, for example, uh, is going to go very in-depth giving background and understanding of why the Jews do cer- certain things, why Jesus celebrated certain things. Matthew doesn't waste any time on that because he doesn't need to. The people he's writing to inherently understand these things. But he's writing not just to Jews, he's writing to Jews to make sure they understand Jesus is the promised one. 
He's the Messiah. He's the anointed one who was declared, prophesied to come. In fact, Matthew gives far more Old Testament prophecy than any of the other gospels do. And so his primary purpose, his initial purpose in writing is to demonstrate to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. His second purpose that we see is he wrote to encourage them, them being the Jews, that God still loves them even though Jesus was rejected and crucified. Think about this. He's writing to say, hey, Jesus is the Messiah. That's good news. But if you're a Jew, that could be received as very bad news because, hey, we rejected the Messiah. We crucified the Messiah. We screamed in the streets, crucify him, crucify him. We chose Barabbas over him. As a Jew, to have someone explain to you that Jesus is the Messiah, that could initially be a very terrifying thought. And yet Matthew writes to say, don't be afraid. God's not mad at you. He's not angry with you because of your mistakes, because you've missed out on what God had for you up to this point. He simply wants you to participate in what he has for you going forward. I don't know about you, but I think that's a good news as we start a new year. Maybe 2021 wasn't a great year for you spiritually. Maybe you didn't walk in God's very best up to this point. Maybe you missed some of what God had for you. The reality is Jesus is still for you even if you weren't for him last year or last month or last night. He is still for us. He is still up to something. And he doesn't declare through his word his messiahship, his chosenness to to put us down for not receiving him. He says, hey, look to me today. Find me today. Today is the day of salvation. So be encouraged as we begin to read through Matthew. As we read through Matthew over the next few days, I want you to look for those Old Testament references. Uh, I want you to, to see how Matthew would be articulating Jesus specifically towards a Jewish audience. One other thing we'll notice in the book of Matthew is Matthew has Jesus talk a lot about the kingdom of heaven. Uh, The other gospels often talk about the kingdom of God, but Matthew specifically talks about the kingdom of heaven. And one of the reasons why that is interesting is in writing to a Jewish audience, one of the things that the Jews didn't do very much is they didn't use the name of God. They didn't say the name Yahweh. They thought that name was sacred and that we would desecrate the name by using it. And so Matthew, in understanding his audience, in writing to his audience, he doesn't say the kingdom of Yahweh, the kingdom of God. He says the kingdom of heaven speaking the language of the people he's trying to reach. I think it's important for us as believers to understand who are we trying to reach and how do we best communicate in a way that they understand that Jesus is for them. All that being said, we're going to see how Matthew begins. Talking about the power of beginnings today. How does Matthew begin towards this purpose of articulating Jesus as the Messiah for the Jews and and letting them know that Jesus still loves them? God still loves them despite the fact that Jesus was crucified. We're going to start in Matthew chapter 1. And I used to think that Matthew started with the most unlikely uh, type of writing, right? The New Testament, again, I said it's the most important 27 books ever written. I believe that with all my heart, followed very closely by the 36 books of the Old Testament. Man, these are the words of life. These are the words of of eternity. These are the words of salvation. And as this most important story ever told begins to be unpacked, it starts with a genealogy, 
Are you kidding me? It starts with the most boring, most, most distancing, easiest part to check out on that there could possibly be. And yet, I don't believe it starts with a genealogy by accident. I believe God knew exactly what he was trying to accomplish. And as his Holy Spirit led Matthew to write this gospel, he had some great purpose in using a genealogy. So here's what we're going to do. You're all supposed to read Matthew chapter 1 as well as the rest of the first eight chapters of Matthew today. So I'm going to help you out today. We're going to read the genealogy together. This means you don't have to read it. You don't have to try to learn how to pronounce it. You don't have to check your brain out as we read over these names. I want you to read through this genealogy with me today, and then we're going to go back and and discover some things in this genealogy. It says this in Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 1. It says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. Notice how it begins. Man, very directly, Matthew states his purpose. Who am I telling you about? I'm telling you about the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is the chosen one. Uh, He is the Messiah. Now, that word Messiah, we often use the Greek version of, which is Christ. You've probably heard of Jesus Christ. Uh, Messiah is the Hebrew, the Jewish version of that. So he declares off the, very off the beginning that Jesus is the Messiah. But notice who he says he is. He didn't just say he's the Messiah. He says the son of David. Why is that significant? Because this genealogy, Matthew is going to use to prove that Jesus is the rightful king of Israel, that he actually has the right to the throne. David was the first king in a line of succession in a dynasty in Israel. And so Jesus is descended from David. Matthew's going to prove it to us. But he doesn't stop with David. He actually says also the son of Abraham. Why does he do this? Well, again, connecting to his purpose. He's writing to the Jewish people. And the Jews all saw Abraham as their father. And so he's saying, Jesus is one of you. Now, later on this week, we're going to read the genealogy in the book of Luke. Luke's genealogy looks a little bit different. Luke's not just going to trace Jesus back to Abraham. He's going to trace Jesus all the way back to Adam. Why? Because Luke's gospel declares that Jesus isn't just for Jews. Jesus is for everybody. And so he doesn't trace Jesus back to Abraham. He actually traces Jesus back to Adam demonstrating, man, his relation to all of humankind, that he came for all of us as Gentiles. So we see slightly different purposes, slightly different audiences that are being addressed in these Gospels, though they tell the same story of the same person. So he says, Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now let's read through the genealogy together, and I want to encourage you, don't turn off your brain. Don't check out. We're going to read a lot of difficult names, and I'm going to read them for you. You don't have to go back and read this as you read Matthew 1 through 8 later on today, but read it with me, uh, and then you can start at the end of the genealogy when you pick up your reading. It says, Abraham, you know that name, that's not too difficult, was the father of Isaac. You've probably heard of him. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah. Shout out to my son who's watching online right now. What's up, Judah? And his brothers. Judah had 11 brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah. They were twins whose mother was Tamar. Now, I want you to see very early in this genealogy, and we're going to see it a lot, this genealogy is full of broken people, full of messed up people. Perez and and, uh, Hezron, excuse me, Perez, I just got to go back. Perez and Zerah, excuse me, whose mother was Tamar, they were birthed in adultery. 
uh, Tamar was not Judah's wife. And so very early in Jesus' genealogy, we see sin. We see brokenness that Jesus comes from. Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Amminadab, Amminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, who was not a fish, Salmon, the father of Boaz, who you may have heard of. His father, his father was Boaz, his mother was Rahab. Uh, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. You see multiple ladies mentioned here. It's mostly men, but they mention a few women. And the women demonstrate oftentimes the brokenness of this line. Who is Rahab? If you're familiar, Rahab was a prostitute. Uh, She was a prostitute. Not only was she a prostitute, she wasn't a Jew. She was a foreigner. Ruth much more positive example, a woman who served God wholeheartedly, who loved God, who was dedicated to her mother-in-law, Naomi, also a foreigner. She was uh, from the nation of Moab, the nearby nation. And so we see in Jesus' genealogy brokenness. We also see in Jesus' genealogy, man, God's heart for more than just the Jews, God's heart for for interracial marriage, God's heart to bring people together in Christ. Even in this letter, this gospel, which is written to the Jews, we see this embedded in Jesus' genealogy. Verse 6, it says, Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, who you're familiar with, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Uh, So we don't see Bathsheba named here, but she's suggested here, David and Bathsheba. What do we know about them? Relationship was formed in adultery. David ended up marrying Bathsheba. It was formed not just in adultery, formed through murder. David was a murderer, and yet he is an ancestor of Christ. We see the brokenness of man in the genealogy of Jesus. Verse 7 says, Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the first king of Judah. After Solomon's death, the nation of Israel is split into two parts. The nation of Israel, the kingdom of Israel in the north, and the kingdom of Judah in the south separate. God basically rejects Rehoboam because he's not going to follow God. He says, I'm not giving you the majority of my kingdom. I'm giving it to someone else. But for David's sake, he says, I'm going to leave a remnant, the kingdom of Judah. And so Rehoboam becomes the first king of Judah. Rehoboam becomes the father of Abijah. So this next section is going to be a whole bunch of kings. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, who you probably know from the phrase jumping Jehoshaphat. Uh, he, He was a godly man, one who served God. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was another very godly king. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, God used to turn the nation back to him. Hezekiah was a very godly king. And then we get to Manasseh. Manasseh was a very ungodly king, a very wicked king. In fact, this is where we begin to see the the kings of Judah start to go in the very wrong direction. Manasseh instituted idolatry, uh, polygamy. He, He brought people back to following gods that were not Yahweh. Uh, And so he was rejected by God. His son Amon came, and Amon carried out his father's practices. In fact, Amon only lasted two years before he was murdered by his people. He was assassinated. Uh, And then Josiah came to the throne. Josiah was eight years old 
when he became the king of Judah. And God used Josiah mightily. Josiah was one of the greatest kings of Judah, one of the most godly kings of Judah. Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. And so the kingdom is exiled. Uh, the northern kingdom had already been exiled to Assyria, but Judah is now fallen as well because of the wickedness of many of their leaders and the wickedness of their people, and they are exiled to Babylon. This is where we see some people you're probably familiar with rushed off to Babylon. We see people like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who are exiled to Babylon there. Verse 12, after the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. This is where we get into the really weird names, uh, this last section here. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abahud, Abahud, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azar, the father of Zadok. I did know someone named Zadok once, not one I recommend. We didn't name any of our kids that, but you can go with that if you like. Zadok, the father of Akim, Akim, the father of Elihud, Elihud, the father of Eliezer, Eliezer, the father of Mathan, Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. We see five women in this genealogy, which is unique. Most genealogies of that era didn't list women at all. It would only be a reference to the men. And so we see the role that the women played in this story. Mary and, and Ruth, very positive examples of people who followed God, who were faithful to God's call on their life. Rahab, demonstration of God's redemption, this prostitute who, who then rescued the spies of Israel and was redeemed into the Jewish family. We see a lot of things demonstrated through these five women who are listed for us in this genealogy. Verse 17, we'll read very quickly. You should have your Bible open. It says, thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. That leaves us with about eight verses left for you to read in Matthew chapter one as it gets into the birth of Jesus. What is this genealogy there for? Man, it seems like it would make so much more sense to start with the birth of Jesus, right? The supernatural birth, the virgin birth, Emmanuel, God with us. Man, I love Christmas. I love the Christmas story. Why would Matthew start with the genealogy of who Jesus was rather than the story of how Jesus came to be? Well, I believe that genealogy is there for many reasons, but as we talk about the power of beginnings, I want to give you two specific truths uh, that Matthew's genealogy teaches us, two principles from Matthew's genealogy. The first one is this, is the genealogy is there to demonstrate very clearly that Jesus is the rightful king of Israel, that Jesus has a right to the throne in Jerusalem, that, that Jesus is given by inheritance the rights to the throne. Why this is important is because this was foretold. Uh, the Messiah had to be descended from David. It was the way it had to be done. God had promised this for hundreds of years. In fact, at least 700 years, probably longer than that. 
And so for generation after generation after generation, the Jews looked forward to a rightful heir to David's throne, to restore the kingdom, to restore them to their rightful place. David's kingdom and Solomon's kingdom was the, the greatest that Israel ever was. Uh, and they wanted to be restored to that. And so it had to be a descendant of King David to do so. So that's an important reason why Matthew's genealogy was there for his original readers. But for most of us in this room, or whatever room you happen to be watching in today, it's probably not that significant. You already know that Jesus was the rightful king of Israel. You already know that Jesus is the Messiah. So the second thing I think is very significant for us. Why did he include this genealogy? Because God uses broken people. God uses broken people. Now, we've talked a lot about the women. There's not just broken women in this genealogy. There's very broken men in this genealogy. We mentioned Judah's brokenness. Abraham was a liar, right? Jacob was a deceiver. Man, we can go generation to generation and discover the sinfulness, the brokenness that many of these had. Some of them were outright wicked and rejected God fully. Some of them had moments of wickedness in a life that chose to try and seek and honor God. And yet, despite all of this brokenness, despite all of this failure, God chose this very imperfect family, this very broken family, to bring his son into the world. And I think that's good news for us. Because I don't know about you, but my family's broken. I don't know about you, but, but, but my home doesn't always follow the very best. Man, we miss it sometimes and yet God chooses again and again and again to use broken people he doesn't reject Rahab because of her past in fact he favors Rahab because of her righteousness what she chooses to do right he doesn't reject Judah because he births his sons in sin he chooses Judah and says I'm bringing my son through your tribe in fact my son will be called the lion of the tribe of Judah Right Again and again, God chooses to see the good in people, chooses to see the righteousness in people, chooses to see the promise in people rather than choosing to see their failures. And that's great news for us in a generation that seems to be far from God. In a generation that seems to be moving further and further away from him, I want to encourage you that God uses broken people. God uses broken nations. God uses broken lands. God uses broken generations. God uses broken things to produce something incredible. And that means he can use you. So here we are. We're at the beginning of 2022. We're at the beginning of New Through 30. We're at the beginning of a Daniel fast. So I want to give you today some encouragements about beginnings. In fact, I just want to pull two things from this text that we just read to encourage you with very quickly today. If you're taking notes, write these down. I want to give you two truths about beginnings as we start off a new year, as we start off a new reading plan, as we start off a new fast. The first truth about beginnings that you need to know is this. God cares about your beginnings. He cares about your beginnings. In fact, in his word, as he starts off the most important section of the Bible to tell us the most important story ever told, he starts with Jesus' beginnings. And he starts with, with, with his ancestry. He says, I want you to know who my son is from an earthly perspective. 
I believe God cares about the beginning of your 2022. Now, many of you right now are in quarantine because we've had COVID hit a lot of our families. Many of you are, are, are playing it safe because you're trying to make sure, man, that, that you're safe or those who you know and love who are at risk are safe. Some of you are probably at home this morning frustrated that you can't be at church because you're not sick and you're not worried about it and you wish you could be here with us. And regardless of your situation this morning, I want to encourage you with this. God's got a plan for the beginning of your 2022. God cares about your beginnings. God's got a plan for the beginning of your Daniel fast. And you're like, well, hey, I'm not doing the Daniel fast, Pastor Troy. Maybe you are. Open your heart and let God speak to you. Don't write it off just yet. He's got a plan for the beginning of your reading plan. Man, as he's going to show you some things in Matthew 1 through 8, even today, as we begin reading through the New Testament in 30 days, I believe God's got a plan for your beginning. He cares about our beginnings. We see this in so many different ways, right? We see this principle embedded in the Old Testament, the principle of the first fruits, that God cares about our first. This is one of the reasons why we fast at the beginning of the year. Uh, because we think, man, it's important to give God time any point in the year, but it's especially powerful when we give him our first. Man, the first part of our year, that there's something extra special God can do in this. He cares about your beginnings. In fact, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 43, God's word says this. It says, forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. Uh, man, what a, what a great statement for the season that we're in. I don't know what the last few years have looked like for you, the last couple of years, but I know I got some stuff I could forget. Um, I, I got some stuff that, that I could, man, just block out of my memory. And so God says in his word, forget the former things, do not dwell on the past. In fact, you got your Bible open, go ahead and turn to Isaiah 43 so you can mark a couple of verses there. He says, forget those former things, don't dwell on the past. I don't know what your season looks like, what your frustration looks like, what your discouragement looks like right now, but I would encourage you with this, forget the former things, do not dwell on the past. I know some of us are, are stuck in dwelling on the past. Maybe we're stuck in dwelling on the frustrations of the last two years, man, the, the stuff that we've gone through, the sickness, the loss, uh, the changes in our job situations, the changes in our church situations. There's a lot to dwell on. Maybe for you, you're stuck on dwelling on 2019 and how great things were before the pandemic hit. And you're just like waiting for, man, this thing to get over with. Man, when can we be done with this? When can we be out of this thing and get things back to normal? Regardless of the situation, God says to you today, do not dwell on the past. Forget those former things. But he doesn't stop there. He says this, he, verse 19, he says, see, I am doing a new thing. Everybody say a new thing. new thing. Man, I believe that could be a prophetic word for us today as a church. I believe that's something God wants to speak over our nation, over our families, over our lives. He says, I am doing a new thing. He says, now it springs up. Do you not perceive it. In other words, even if you don't see it, even if you're not aware of it, even if you don't feel it yet, God is doing something. He's birthing something. He's creating something. He's up to something. Amen, church? He says, I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. I can't help but read that verse and think back to last Sunday. 
uh, as we talked about these seeds that God places in us just waiting for the right conditions. God's dreams in your heart, that God is birthing some things. I, I spoke with some people this week, man, who, who God is birthing some new stuff. I wish I could come up here and tell you, but it's not my story to tell. But man, God's up to some stuff in our church. Man, he's doing some new things in people's lives. He's creating some new dreams and, and awakening some things in people's hearts. And I'm so fired up to see what he's up to. Why? Because we serve a God who makes the way in the wilderness. And you need to know that because you may feel like you're in the wilderness right now. Man, it may feel like a wilderness season. In fact, at this point, it's been so long. We're, what, 22 months into this thing? It may feel like, man, we're just wandering in the desert like the Israelites. They spent 40 years out there, right? Man, it may feel like it's been 40 years. But the reality is even in the wilderness, God makes a way. Even in the wasteland, God produces streams. He says, see, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? God is up to something. Don't dwell on the past. Forget the former things. I don't know what your former things may look like. I know this week there were some numbers that came out, some, some studies on the church that were pretty discouraging for me. Uh, man, one study showed that in the year 2020, 4,000 American churches shut their doors. 4,000 American churches shut permanently, not temporarily, not to ride it out until the other side. 4,000 churches said we're done. It's not worth pushing anymore. It's not worth going forward. My fear is 2021 is probably going to flesh out very similarly. There were a number of churches that shut. Man, I know churches that shut, that, that, that have closed their doors. And I know people who've been affected by this. Man, families who've been affected by this. And I know, look, I get it. That can be God's sovereign hand. Maybe there are churches that needed to shut. Maybe their season was done. Maybe there were pastors who didn't need to be in ministry anymore. Like, I get all of those things. I'm not saying every one of those churches that shut is, is a failure or every one of those churches that shut is a disaster or anything like that. But here's what I do believe. Man, in the midst of a whole lot of stuff shutting down and a whole lot dying, God's still got a plan for his church. Man, in fact, I think the more and more churches we see shut, the more important the churches that are open are going to be. The more important that the call that God has on his people to be the light in our communities is going to be God cares about our beginnings. We got a reading plan right here. Man, we got a choice that we all face. Am I going to Turn off the distractions for 30 minutes a day to spend this time in the word or 45 minutes a day or maybe even an hour a day. Man, am I going to do what's uncomfortable, what's not normal for me? Am I going to get out of my usual habits? Well, I believe if you do, God's going to honor that. God's going to meet you where you're at as you do it. In fact, the second truth about beginnings that I want to share with you is this. Number two, starting the year right is less about creating good circumstances and more about creating the right mindset. Look, church, here's the reality. I can't promise you good circumstances this year. I can't promise you, if you do the Daniel Fast this year, and you do the reading plan, it's going to be the best year you've ever had. You're going to live your best life. I wish I could promise you that. Uh, but number one, God's word doesn't promise you that, and I don't like making promises that God's word doesn't. Uh, number two, we've done the Daniel Fast and the reading plan the last two years, and I promise you they weren't the best two years ever. So I'd be lying to you if I stood up here and I said, if you'll just do this, you're creating the best year you've ever had. I can't promise you that. Here's what I can promise you. God knows what you're going to experience in 2022. 
He knows your challenges. He knows your frustrations. He knows the highs. He knows the lows. He knows the mountains. He knows the valleys. He's gone before you into all of those things this year. I don't know what you're going to face, but I know who does. And if you'll choose to give him this first portion of your year, this first 21 days in fasting, man, this first 30 days in the reading plan, I can't promise you it's going to provide all good circumstances. In fact, I can probably promise you it won't. But what it will do is it'll get your mind right. It'll get your heart right. It'll get you focused in the right direction so that when those challenges come, when those discouragements come, when those frustrations come, when that suffering comes, when that pain comes, you're already close to God. You're already in tune with his spirit. Man, it's, it's not all going to be all bad this year. I can pretty much promise you that too. There have been some great things that happened the last two years. Man, God's been up to some great things in 2020 and 2021, and I'm sure he's going to be up to some great things in 2022. And man, if we'll give him this first part, we're going to position ourselves to walk in the very best that he has for us. Man, to get the very most out of every blessing. Man, to move most quickly through every frustration that our mindset will be right, that we'll be able to glean whatever it is God wants us to learn from whatever situations we face, good and bad. Two truths about beginnings today. God cares about your beginnings. He cares about the beginning of your year. He cares about your first fruits. He cares even about day one of your reading plan and day one of your fast, even though it's not even a full day. It's like, what, seven hours, and hopefully you'll be asleep before midnight. Uh, so it's a, it's a partial day of a partial fast today. He cares about the start. Let's get off to a good start, church. Man, let, 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 let's create a path for God to give us the mindset he wants, for God to order our steps in this year. Not that it's going to be a perfect year, but I believe it can be a powerful year. I believe it can be a year where, where we move towards God, and as we move towards him, he promises he's going to move towards us. The reality is, it's important, especially when things aren't going well especially in the midst of the frustration and the division and the back and forth and, and, and the, the shouting and the, the hatred and so much that's going on right now. This world, this nation needs the church to be the church. God's invited us to step up. He's invited us, man, make a sacrifice, cut some stuff out to make some more room for me. And as you do, he's gonna step in. His spirit's going to move in our midst. He's going to prepare us for what he wants to do this year. Not a perfect year. Maybe not the best year ever, but a great year. A powerful year. A year where he uses us for his glory. And that's always a good year.